All right, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. I, I was thinking today, once again, as we're, we're spending time with Jesus in Matthew, how uh, my favorite thing about, about being in Israel, and this is not an, an advertisement, I know I hit you guys kind of hard last week on that. My favorite thing about being in Israel is being in the place where Jesus walked and putting my feet down in, in the areas. I, I shared many, many months ago about how when we were there and we were in the synagogue at Capernaum, and the ruins there, and I'm pointing out a uh, synagogue floor that we can say pretty sh- assuredly Jesus stood on that floor. And, and I turned around, and minutes later, uh, Aubrey Hoffman and, and my daughter Hannah had their shoes off, and they were taking pictures of their bare feet on that floor. <laughs> Just the idea that He was right there, you know. And that shouldn't take away from the fact that Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, right here. And this, this concrete floor in this barn is as holy as that floor in Capernaum because Jesus is here. That being said, there is just something about being in the place that Jesus is. And so going through the Gospel of Matthew, it is just such a joy to be where Jesus is. We're going to walk some more with Him tonight and and follow on in His ministry. So beginning in Matthew chapter 9, right off the bat, verse 1, getting into a boat... Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. His own city is Capernaum now. Not Nazareth. He was booted out of Nazareth. But he's living in Capernaum. That's kind of his base of operations. Peter's house is there. Peter's family is all there. So that's, that's his home base. But you might, might remember right before this, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus has just been asked to leave Gadara. So he was asked to leave Nazareth. He was asked to leave Gadara. Ultimately, he would be crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem. Just about everywhere Jesus went, he stirred things up and was asked to leave by one person or another. Tragic, because the very one who is there to save and deliver is often the one that's asked to leave. But he's back now. Remember on Sunday we talked about Gadara, that place that was once the region of Gad. Now Gadara. And Jesus healed the two demon-possessed men there. We also learned that in Matthew 8 and 9, last week we talked about the fact that following the kingdom manifesto of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we immediately get into a series of miracles. Chapters 8 and 9 specifically are one miracle after another. Miracle upon miracle. And miracles that weren't necessarily in order chronologically. But Matthew places them here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to now support the claims and the teaching that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here's the Declaration of Independence, and now here is Jesus living it out before your very eyes. Here is the authority by which He does these things. We talked about how miracles, last week we talked about that they are supernatural intervention into the natural order. They aren't things that are beautiful, wonderful, and fantastic that happen naturally. They're supernatural. The Lord actually breaks into time and space and does things that are not possible unless there's supernatural power given. So some things we've seen so far. If you want to jot these down as a, as, a, as a brief list, we saw Jesus cured the sick. He cured the sick. A leper, a centurion servant, Pete's mom-in-law. And in these we saw Jesus' power over the physical body. He cured the sick, showing that He had power over the physical body. Secondly, Jesus calmed the sea. He calmed the sea instantaneously, amazingly, subduing both the wind and the waves. One thing to stop the wind is another thing to stop the rocking of the sea, but that went as still as glass. And Jesus revealed as He calmed the sea His supernatural power over the natural world. 
Power over the physical body, power over the natural world. Thirdly, we saw Jesus cast demons into swine. So now he's got the power not only to cure the sick, calm the sea, but now he can cast out demons, which shows a power over the spiritual realm. And Matthew is layering this one upon the other to where as we get to the end of chapter 8, we're saying this is one powerful man. He's making the case that Jesus is the king. That Jesus came as God in the flesh. But he hasn't quite said that, not overtly. We're just watching him lay this out before us. And for someone who's never believed in Jesus before, it's very cool to walk this out. Okay, so he cured the sick, calmed the sea, cast demons into swine. Now, the miraculous ministry of Jesus continues as we go to what I believe is the heart of His first coming. The first miracle that occurs here in chapter 9 shows us, reveals to us, why He came. The number one reason. It's, I believe, the greatest of all miracles. Number four in that list, Jesus commuted the sentence of sin. Jesus commuted the sentence of sin. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this that cures the sick, calms the sea, casts demons into swine, and now offers forgiveness? Who is this, this man? In the parallel passages, Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. And Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 26, the great faith of this man and his friends, the guys who let the paralytic in, their faith is fully detailed. As we know, they dug through the roof of the house in which Jesus was. Now, Luke will use the word tiles, that they took apart tiles to get down there. There weren't tiles on the roof in those days. It would have been a thatched roof, probably made of palm fronds or, or some kind of plants that had been dried, dried and woven together. It's interesting in Israel because when you see ruins that are left behind, like Capernaum, what you see is walls that come about halfway up, sometimes above windows, but no roofs anywhere. And that's because the roof was usually something thatched and wouldn't have lasted all this time. So we see their faith as these guys dig through the roof to get to Jesus, absolutely believing that He would heal. And in verse 3 we're told, some scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. These scribes had a theological problem. Here's a man who's paralyzed. It's been one thing to watch Jesus heal, person after person after person. It is yet another thing to watch as Jesus steps into a realm that is not the realm of man. It is not for man. It's blasphemy. A man is not able to forgive sins. So you can forgive each other. You know, that's one thing. If someone wrongs you, you can forgive them. But you do not have the right, nor do you have the power, nor do I, to say to someone... Your sins are forgiven. You're absolved of all the things that you've done wrong. Forgiven. And the scribes were right. When they heard him say this, they said, wait a minute, that's blasphemy for a man to say that. He shouldn't be able to do this. At this point, the miracles of Jesus were all confined to things, except for the casting out of demons, things that the prophets had done. There were details in the history of Israel where they could say, okay, Okay, we know, we know prophets healed the dead. Raised the dead. We know prophets healed sick people. We know the prophets did miraculous things. So up until now, Jesus could just be, you know, like one of the great prophets. Then he cast demons out. No prophet ever did that. Now he's stepping into a realm of power that is beyond even the prophets. But he takes the next step. He commutes the sentence 
of sin. That is a supernatural miracle none of the early prophets had ever done. And by the way, that is a miracle. Forgiveness of the sin of man requires supernatural intervention. Only God could forgive a man his sin. The problem that the scribes had was that they didn't believe that Jesus was God. They didn't see Him as Emmanuel, God with us. Daniel did. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 said, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. And so along comes Jesus, and He commutes the sentence of sin. Now, I chose that word specifically. To commute a sentence literally means to lessen it in a courtroom. Okay, we're going to commute that sentence. We're going to take some months off of your jail time, or we're going to make you pay a little less for the traffic fine. We're going to commute the sentence. Or it means that you can be let off for good behavior. We're going to lessen it. We're going to make it a little easier for you. Or we're going to replace the sentence. This was your original sentence. We're going to give you a different one. We're going to commute it. But what nobody here could see was that within a couple of years, Jesus would replace the defendant with himself. He literally wouldn't commute the sin as in letting it go. He would commute it to himself. He would put it on himself. What I'm saying here, and pause and think this through with me, when Jesus forgave sins, it wasn't like me letting my kids off of grounding. Totally different thing. When, when I say to my kids, you know, if I say, Hannah, you're grounded for the weekend, you can't go out, you can't do anything, and by Saturday I'm kind of weakening, you know, she's been good, and her friends call and say, hey, we're going to go to a movie, it's a Christian movie, I know those are rare, but they're out there sometimes, we're going to go see Fireproof, and can Hannah come, and I'm like, alright, I absolve thee. <laughs> you know? When a parent does that, we're just kind of letting it go. We're not fully punished. We're just kind of letting it go. When Jesus said to this, to this paralytic, He said, your sins are forgiven, He wasn't just letting it go. The sin still had to be paid for. But it would be paid for by Jesus. Now this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Every time Jesus said to somebody throughout the Gospels, every single time He said, you are forgiven of your sins, what He was saying is, I'll tell you what, let me take those. I will wear them at Calvary. I'll wear your sin. I will put it on myself. He didn't just cast sins to the wind to dissipate somewhere over the Sea of Galilee. He said, I forgive you, and in so doing, he commuted the sin to himself, what Bonhoeffer called costly grace. And the church has lost sight of this, I'm afraid, in, in, this, in this season. The grace comes easy. Grace is cheap. It's not a big deal. Just love everybody, and Jesus did, and it's cool. Bonhoeffer said, grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. He says it's costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because grace condemns sin. But it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of His Son. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap to us. It's grace. Because God did not reckon His own Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Forgiveness. Boy, it's watered down because again, our concept of forgiveness is I'm just going to let it go. Jesus' concept of forgiveness is I'm going to take your sin and wear it myself so that you don't have to. I'm going to die in your place. Every time he said your sins are forgiven, 
He commuted the punishment to Calvary. Our forgiveness comes at the high price of every single drop of Jesus' blood. And that's what's happening here. And that's absolutely shocking. It was shocking to the scribes because they felt like he was making himself out to be God, which he was. It's shocking to us because we know where this sentence, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. We know that it is demanding payment and Jesus would do it at the cross. The paralytic's sentence became Jesus' sentence. Let me read this to you for a moment. Isaiah 53, in verse 7, talking about the crucifixion, this amazing prophecy. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Listen to this. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And that's what's happening when he said, before he heals the paralytic, he really heals the paralytic. And he does so through the forgiveness of sin. No one could see this yet. Where was the proof? Jesus says to this paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. And people are looking around going, that's an odd thing to say. And how do we really know it's true? So, Jesus shows them that it's true. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, after they said he he blasphemes, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. They still didn't get it. They still thought God had given Jesus this authority as opposed to Jesus inherently having the authority. Now think about this. These two phrases, your sins are forgiven and get up and walk are two things that are equally easy to say. Jesus says, which one's easier to say? Well, they're both easy to say. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Doesn't tell you. They're both the same number of words. It's not that one's harder to say than the other. But the proof is in the pudding. And by the way, I looked up that phrase. I'm just curious this week. That's wrong. You know we say that wrong? It's not the proof is in the pudding. It's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's how you know what's in the pudding when you eat it. Okay? Proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now I know that's important. Deep biblical teaching that I'm giving you tonight. But that's what's going on here. The proof of the pudding is in the eating and Jesus gives them something to chew on since they can't actually see forgiveness taking place. He gives them an example of forgiveness because, gang, this is exactly what forgiveness is. Healing from paralysis. That's forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, I am paralyzed by my sin. I can't move forward. I can't move back. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in that place of of my wrongness. No matter how I try to get away from it, eventually I am crippled and on the ground again going, I am still a sinner. And so he heals this. It's an amazing picture. Isn't it funny that people call Christianity a crutch? When healing is, when forgiveness is healing from paralysis? 
The reality is, gang, that sin cripples every one of us. It cripples our relationships. It cripples our joy. It cripples our hope. It cripples even our faith. And in my mind, rebellion is just a lame way to live. Paralysis. Stuck in that place. Jesus says, and this is... He's so amazing, isn't He? I mean, there are times I read this and I just got to go, praise Jesus. He chooses to express forgiveness through the healing of paralysis because that's exactly what it is. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But I wonder sometimes if people don't prefer paralysis to freedom. See, the nice thing about paralysis is it's safer. You're not going anywhere, so you really can't get hurt. You're not going to trip if you're lying on the ground paralyzed. You're not going to fall into a wall. You're not going to bump into something because you're right there. It's safer. The expectations are definitely lower when you're paralyzed. You know, sorry I couldn't get there. Would have, but you know, paralyzed. And people can make excuses when we sit in our sin. I, you know, nothing I could really do about it. But what does the Lord say? Hebrews 12, verse 12. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light... As He Himself is in the life, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And John says in 1 John 2.6, The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. It's not easy to do. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew chapter 5. I had coffee with a friend this morning and we were talking about this very thing about this whole issue of, of the Sermon on the Mount and he made the comment I thought it was great he said you know what Matthew chapter 5 is the toughest chapter in the entire Bible for me because it just it is so demanding it's just too much you know be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect <laughs> okay how am I going to do that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart you've already committed adultery okay if you're even angry with a brother you might as well go ahead and commit murder because that's what's happened Spiritually speaking. I mean, it is, a, it is a tough and exacting thing. And yet, that's where God calls us to walk. In Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. To walk out the Sermon on the Mount. To walk in the kingdom. That's what we're called to. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And I'm reading how Jesus walked. And my immediate reaction is, it's impossible. I can't do it. So why does the Lord call us to walk as He walked if He knows we can't do it? Same reason He invited Peter to step out of the boat. Come on, walk on the water. But keep your eyes on me. And that's, that's the key. In another conversation I had this week, I was struck by that very thought. Here's how we do it. We keep our eyes on Him. We keep looking at Jesus. The more I spend of my time looking at Jesus the more amazingly I'm walking like Jesus. When I look at myself and try and compare myself to the teachings and try and live up to the teachings, looking at myself, all I see is wind and waves and it freaks me out and down I go. Walk as He walked. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Jesus said, let's put them together. I heal your paralysis. I forgive your sin. 
So Jesus commuted our sin to the cross so we might stop being lame and get up and walk with Him. Now, verse 9 tells us Jesus went on from there. And He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and He said to him, Follow me. And He got up and followed him. Now, Matthew gives us a very modest little story here about his own calling. And it's pretty cool. He calls himself Matthew. Mark and Luke call him Levi. It's one and the same guy. And he was sitting there in his tax collector booth, and along comes Jesus, follow me. So he got up, he followed him. And in this next section, we're going to see three reactions, three responses to forgiveness. As we've already now seen the paralytic forgiven, we're going to see more forgiveness and more responses to that forgiveness. But I want you to notice something here that I think is intriguing. Verse 9 follows verse 8. Huh? Pretty impressive. Yes, I know my math. I tell you that because it's interesting where Matthew places his calling. And I think it's purposeful. He places his calling immediately following the healing and the forgiveness of the paralytic. It's almost as if Matthew is inserting a thought here, I'm just like that guy. Jesus called me, but I was paralyzed. Jesus called me, but I'm a sinner. I'm a tax collector. For crying out loud, I'm the guy all the Jews hate, but Jesus called me. He looked at me. He chose me out. And in this mention of His calling, this, this, this direct placement after the miracle of the forgiven paralytic, I think is on purpose. I was lame, but now I walk with Jesus. I'm one of the called. So the first thing we see here is a redeemed man's offering. What happens when Matthew is forgiven and called to be with Jesus? Well, verse 10 tells us it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, this is Matthew's house. So they're not just at some generic house out there. They're at Matthew's house. So Jesus has Matthew in. Luke goes further to to state that Matthew threw a big party for Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. He invited all his friends. Jesus calls him, and in the beginning of his following, he says, oh, this is great, Jesus. Can we have a party? Can we get to, I've got to tell people what's going on here. And I want to celebrate you. I want to celebrate you. A redeemed man's offering. He doesn't know any better, by the way, not to invite his worldly friends. Oops. He doesn't realize that what he probably should have done was go find all the you know, rabbis and synagogue officials and the people who are religiously clean and have them over because that would look a whole lot better for Jesus than the mess of the lot that he invited in. A bunch of tax collectors and sinners and the partiers and the drunkards and the people about town. Interesting to me. That's, Matthew's not even thinking about it. He just wants to invite his friends to see Jesus. As sordid and messed up as they all were, come on, you've got to see Jesus who I now follow. And when a person recognizes that they're truly saved and called by Jesus, it's interesting, the first response usually isn't to cut off their old friendships. Usually the first response is to tell the people around them. Now, when a person becomes religious or joins a religious order, oftentimes the first response is cut off your old friends. But when you come into a relationship with Jesus, there's something about Jesus that makes you want to tell people that you're in this new relationship with Him. Isaiah 49, verse 13 says, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. And that's why every time someone gets healed, even when Jesus says, Keep this quiet, they can't. 
They go running about telling everybody because they're so excited that they've had contact with Jesus. So Matthew gives this big reception at Jesus for Jesus at his house, celebrating his calling. The second thing we see here, though, is the religious man's offense. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You ever wonder why all the tax collectors are so often coupled up with sinners? Well, what is that? Why, why do they have to be in that? You know, it's tax, sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and prostitutes. I mean, they're always right there with the dregs of society. And the reason you may know is that Rome's influence was huge in the region. And Judea, Samaria was a puppet state. The Jewish people were under the, the thumb of Rome. And the way Rome dealt with taxes was they allowed people in their own regions to become tax collectors. They either had to buy their way in or they had to earn it. But they would collect taxes for Rome and send it there. And Rome's policy was, you collect taxes, here's X amount of dollars that we need from you. Anything you can make above and beyond that is yours to keep. What do you think they did? They lined their pockets. Because they could go and say, hey, Roman taxes do, and they could make up any number they wanted as long as it was enough to cover the tax. So if it was 10 bucks for a family, they could go and say, Rome needs $100. And pretty soon people started to figure out the tax collectors were a bunch of cheats and swindlers living off the sour luck of the people. So the tax collectors were hated. They represented Rome. They ripped off their fellow Jews. And because of their outcast position... Eventually, the tax collectors ran with the wrong crowd, these, these sordid people. And Jesus is at this party. And he is hanging with all these people, verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, it's those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Once again, now Matthew reaches back. He quotes Jesus, who's quoting Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Let me read this to you. Hosea, chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to thee? I'm reading in the King James, by the way, because it's a great translation in this. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore I have hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are as the light that goes forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What he's saying, what the prophet is revealing, and Jesus is quoting, is that where mercy is lacking, religious formality is meaningless. Here's the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They were into religious formality. They're looking at where Jesus is sitting and they're going, you know, religiously that just isn't good. It's unhealthy. It doesn't look right. It sends a bad message. And that's where their hearts were. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Where's the mercy? Look at all these people. By the way, this this theme is going to come right back up at us in just a minute. Look at these people sitting here in Matthew's house. You see sinners. You see tax collectors. You see non-Christians. What does Jesus see? It's interesting to me, this whole idea of commuting sin, God had commuted it all the way back from the days of Israel, all the way up to the cross. Romans 3.25 says, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance or the patience of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Everything done up to the cross. He said, okay, I'm going to commu- if you will have faith in Me, I'm going to commute your sin, your punishment, forward to the cross. 
And he had done that. And, and, and he had shown such grace and such mercy to the people. And Hosea proclaimed that. Hey, it's not sacrifice God's looking for. It's compassion. It's to be like your father is. And by the way, for us as Christians in the world, we're not holy because we look it. Or because we show up at church. Or because we carry around a Bible. We're holy because our actions bear out that we're like our Father. Our holiness is our separateness, our distinctness as followers of Jesus is found when we're compassionate. When we love someone who doesn't deserve to be loved. When we care about people. When we put others before ourselves. That's when people look and go, you're different, which is what holy means. Different, set apart, unique. That's where our holiness is. Now there's a third group of people who see Jesus at Matthew's house, hanging out with Matthew's friends. A group of John the Baptist's disciples. And they're a bit confused by all this. And so they ask about this. Verse 14. says the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What, What does this mean here? This is a very significant statement of Jesus. What does it mean? I want you to think about it this week and we'll come back to it and talk about it on Sunday. Now as this teaching goes on and Jesus is talking with John's disciples and trying to help them over their confusion and explain what's happening, suddenly they're interrupted. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down or worshipped before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. We know the synagogue leader's name from the other gospel writers. It's it's Jairus. Jairus' daughter is home dead. Some of the other gospels, Mark and Luke, they say that that she was dying. The synagogue leader comes and says, my daughter is dying, and, and then as they're walking back, they find out that she actually has completely died. Matthew just says that he came and says she's dead. Is there a contradiction? No, Matthew's just putting it all together, shortening the story. He's giving more of the bullet point here. My daughter's just died. Come lay your hand on her and she will live. And so Jesus got up immediately and went. Jesus always immediately responds to faith. And you'll see this again and again. When faith is evident, Jesus acts. When the ceiling tiles opened up and the dust started falling you know, on the robes of the Pharisees around there and the mess was made and suddenly this paralytic is lowered down, Jesus, the first thing he saw was faith. Faith. These guys believe so much that I can heal this man that they went through the roof to do it, to get him to me. Faith. And so Jesus reacts immediately and heals the greater of the two ills. That is, he forgives him. And here again, the synagogue leader comes as a Jew, a higher up in the synagogue, who's really putting his reputation on the line. And he falls down before Jesus. And he worships him. And he says, come with me, my daughter is dead. You're the only one who can do something about this. And Jesus sees faith. And when Jesus sees faith, He goes. He sets out. Amazing. But as they go, verse 20 tells us, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind Him and touched the fringe of His cloak. For she was saying to herself, I will, if I only touch His garment, I will get well. 
But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. Interesting. One great need hangs in the balance. A dead little girl. But Jesus pauses to deal with another great need. You don't see Jesus saying, You know what? Can you stop that? I'm in a hurry here. i got to get... Jesus deals with one thing at a time. He is never rushed. He is never hurried. He always moved purposefully and decisively. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he that believes shall not make haste. Faith is never rushed. Faith always says, You know what? We can pray about this. We can wait. We can stop for a moment. In the parallel story, Luke 8.45 tells us that Jesus stopped the crowd to ask, Who touched me? Who touched me? And the crowd of people all mashing around Jesus, Who touched me? And Peter goes, "Uh, Lord, everyone, we're all here. How can you say who touched me? And Jesus says, and I love this phrase, Luke 8.45, I was aware that power had gone out from me. That phrase gives me a chill. Power left me. Wow. Just because she happened to touch him in faith. And it was her faith, by the way, that released Jesus' power. It was her faith that moved him. Matthew is the only writer here. He's the only writer who specifically mentions the place on the robe, the French. Luke mentions it. Mark mentions that that she touches his robe. Matthew says he, he touches the French. Literally here, it's the tassel. All Jewish men have them. Draw back. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37. Tells us the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put the tassel on each corner, or put with the tassels, a cord of blue. So on the prayer shawls, literally the the talits of the Jewish people, they had tassels all the way around, front and back. But each one of the corners had had this blue cord. And God said, this is for all of the men of Israel. You need to have these four blue cords. What were they for? To remind them of the commandments. To remind them to keep the law of God. To make them think about God. Blue in the Bible always indicates heaven. And so it's to make them think about who the Lord is, where He's from, what these commandments have to do with. He said, it'll be a tassel for you to look at, Numbers 15.39, and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. So that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So these tassels were very important to the Jewish person because they they spoke of heaven. They spoke of the commander. And it's interesting to me, Matthew points it out, that that's the place that she reaches for. She had some thinking. As she saw Jesus going by, she thinks, I've got to touch him. Where does she choose to touch him? She grabbed a tassel. One of those places that spoke of the commander. It also spoke of authority, because a lot of times the Jewish men in these tassels would weave in different colors or or, or different uh, threads that spoke of their position in the community, that spoke of their authority. So these blue tassels said, this is who this man is. And so she goes for the tassel. She grabs hold of the tassel, aiming for Jesus' authority. And Jesus, Jesus says, daughter, take courage. 
Your faith has made you well. The word daughter there in the Greek is an affectionate term. It's an affectionate term, he says. This is a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And in that bleeding, Leviticus chapter 15 tells us she would be unclean. That she would be outcast. That she could not even be around other people. For 12 years, this is the isolation this woman has felt. And the moment she's healed, when Jesus turns and looks at her, He calls her daughter. Which speaks so much of the compassion of our Lord. Take faith, He says. Your, or Take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. Now verse 23 says, sorry, we just read that. But you know, verse 23, when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave. Now, now hang on a second. He now leaves the woman on the road. She's healed. They move on. They get to Jairus' house. And when they come inside, there are flute players. And there's a lot of disarray and commotion and, and, and wildness. Have you ever watched a Middle Eastern funeral on TV? Have you ever seen, like, like, I hate to point it out, but, but like when a suicide bomber is being, the body is taken through the street. I guess they wouldn't take the body through the streets, there wouldn't be anything left. But when someone martyrs themselves, or, or, or someone is killed uh, in the Palestinian territories, and they put them up on those fires, and they walk through the streets, have you ever noticed how, it's just, it's just crazy, it's wild. If there's an explosion, and people are hurt, maybe you've, you've seen this, how they will just grab and be running with the body, and the guy is like this, and, and I would think, get him a stretcher or something, man. <laughs> Take it easy with him. There, there's kind of a wildness about how things are done, and funerals, funerals in the Middle East tend to be pretty wild things. In fact, they would hire out. The more they loved the person, the, the more they would spend on hiring in professional mourners who would come in there and just, whoa, well, and play the flutes, and there'd be... There'd be you know, noise going on, the louder the funeral, the more love the person. And this is what Jesus comes into in, in, in Jairus' house, is this loud, rambunctious, you know, mourning going on. And suddenly, the mourning turns to mocking. Because Jesus says, hang on a second, you're not going to get paid for this funeral because she's not dead. She's just asleep. Verse 24. Leave, for the little girl has not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him. The word laughter there, or laughing, is katagalao. And katagalao in the Greek is not just laugh, it's to laugh with scorn. Or to deride someone. They started mocking him. One moment these hired mourners are, whoa, they're wailing, and the next minute they're, they're laughing out. How inappropriate, by the way, if, the, if it truly was a funeral, that they're laughing at him and making fun of him And it struck me today how closely related mourning and mocking are. How quickly we can flip from one to the other. How in our world people are often mourning their condition while at the same time mocking the very Lord who can bring them out of their difficult condition. Mourning and mocking seem to be connected here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says, Know this first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Making fun of the, by the way, of the message of creation in light of possibly evolution. I think that's something we're seeing there. But mocking, even in the state of their mourning, Psalm 1 verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Believe him for his word. Put faith in his promises and set aside the mockers for the sake of the living God. Verse 25, When the crowd had been sent out, 
He entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. It wasn't until the mockers were put out, by the way, that Jesus went in and healed the little girl. Sometimes we need to do that in our lives. We need to put the mocking out of our lives. If you've been dealing with someone, trying to share Christ with someone, and they're just making fun of you, you know, at that point I say, the the moment someone starts to make fun of your faith, that's where I say step back. Give them some room. Because as long as they're mocking your faith, they're not hearing. They're not paying attention. You need to put the mocking aside before the work of Christ can really begin to be done. Now, I want you to notice something. In these two stories, human coincidence and divine intention collide. From a human perspective, we see the little girl and we see the, and we see the, uh, the woman, and there's something that connects these two that's coincidental, but I believe absolutely divinely intentional. The woman had been suffering for a bleeding for how long? Twelve years. How old was the little girl? Twelve years old. So what's up with that? Well, there were twelve sons of Israel, we know that. Twelve tribes with twelve leaders, twelve apostles, twenty-four elders. In the Bible, the number twelve always speaks of, ju- of government. Twelve speaks of government. It's how government is set up, according to the Lord. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us the government will rest on Jesus' shoulders. Tells us there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So the 12-year bleeding, and I do believe it was an actual 12 years, and the 12-year-old little girl dying, all happening at the same time. And what is Matthew saying? What is the Spirit saying to us here? That Jesus has the authority. That it is only by His government that the bleeding could stop and the breathing could begin. The government of Jesus is perfect. And he has the right and the authority as the king to do what he's doing. Verse 27. Well, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Two great words that go great together. (laughs) Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them about this, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about Him throughout all the land. (laughs) We can see! Of course they would say that. They're so excited. But have you noticed so far in every one of these healings, there is a word that connects everything. Faith, 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 faith. Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord! We have faith. It is by your faith you've been healed. It's by your faith. And over and over, Jesus comes back to this, this issue of faith. By the way, I I really can't fault these guys for going out and spreading the news. Any more than I fault Matthew for throwing a party, after all, they're seeing things in a whole new light. Verse 32. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And I really think they're talking about the preponderance of the miracles. It was just one after another after another. He's just healing like crazy. But the Pharisees were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. This will be a familiar rhetoric of the Pharisees that they begin to use in their campaign against Jesus. If it was today, they would spend all of their campaign dollars with commercials coming up saying, 
This Jesus is casting out by Satan. Jesus, he's got to be in league with Satan. Jesus, there's something evil about what's going on. This is what they're thinking. This is what they begin to say. And I want to remind you once again, we talked about this Sunday, but Jesus in Matthew 12, 28 says something incredibly powerful. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what's going on here. It's not by, it doesn't make sense for Satan to cast out Satan. He's just hurting his own cause. But for me to cast out demons, what you're seeing here is the beginning of something huge. It's the kingdom. Verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and watch this, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I'm telling you, gang, it was this constant move of power. No wonder the word was spreading. No wonder you couldn't keep the word from spreading. Because there was healing after healing after healing. In verse 36, Jesus says, or the Bible says, Matthew writes, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. When you look at the world, what do you see? When you look at the world, You watch the news, you pick up the paper, you look at the world around you. What is it that you see? I'll tell you what I see. I see paralysis. I see sinners and users. I see life draining out of people. I see children who are dying. I hear mourning and mocking. I see blindness. I see Satan trying to mute people from speaking words of faith. I see people distressed and dispirited. I see disease and sickness of every kind and it's pretty bleak. And that's what I see. In fact, everything that we've just read in this chapter is what I see in the world today. And it's kind of dismal. And it's kind of depressing. You too wrote a song on an album a couple albums back. They're one of my favorite bands. And it's a song called When I Look at the World. And the chorus of this song, Bono sings... So I try to be like you. And it is, he is talking about God here. It's an interesting song. I try to be like you. I try to feel it like you do. But without you, it's no use. I can't see what you see when I look at the world. And then the last verse of the song, he said something that bothered me for a long time. He said, I'm in the waiting room and I can't see for the smoke. And I think of you and your holy book while the rest of us choke. And I read that the first time, heard him sing it, and I kind of went, oh. What, are you blaming God? And as I read over the words again, just today, because I was reminded, when I look at the world, how I see the world, and I see it through smoke, and I see it through despair, and I see it through tragedy and difficulty, and I see people choking on the Bible. They can't get the word in. They can't, they can't eat it. It's, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't get me where I'm at, man. Mainly because they haven't read it. <laughs> The world's choking on this. Now I can relate to this because as a guy who loves the holy book, I often find myself so overwhelmed in this world that I don't know what to do. I'll tell you something. There's, there's a, it's a real blessing in having less on staff. Because I really think less can go a little further with compassion than I tend to be able to go. Which doesn't mean don't bring a prayer request to me. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, look, just deal with life, okay? But I do find, I do find that where my brother is gifted to go 
quite a distance with people. And I've seen less get wiped out too. But I found it doesn't take much for me after a week or two of a lot of needs coming up that I just start to go, God, I can't do this. There's too much. There's too much need. I got my own problems. <laughs> I got my life to deal with. How do how do I do this, Jesus? And the problem is that I'm looking at the world with my own eyes. And it is. It is difficult and despairing. Russ was talking about, you know, he shared a communion on Sunday morning. Earlier this afternoon, he was just talking about this, this picture that he'd seen of the, of the two little orphan kids who are in a barrel washing themselves, and the barrel was, was filled with, with filth. And he said, it, just, it makes me want to do something. And, he, and he's like, you know, what, what can we do? And, and I'm like, man, every child that comes in is a great blessing, is an amazing wonder. And there's, there's some, I mean, we, we, you can't do it all. Bottom line, what I'm saying is this, it's overwhelming, the needs in this world. How difficult life is in this world. You know what Jesus sees when He looks at the world? Harvest time. He sees the harvest. After all this, He said to His disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Listen to the context. He saw the people. He had compassion for them. They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. In all of these healings, what is Jesus seeing? Just like you and me, there's illness and sickness and disease and sin. And it's a big fat mess. And yet, when Jesus looks at the world, He sees harvest time. I love harvest time. If I can look at the world that way, that makes me... I love harvest. I love the fall. We already went out this fall. Our, our, we take the kids every year out to pick apples and pumpkin. We have our apple pumpkin day. Our family goes out and we go into the, the pumpkin patch there. We found, I think, the most sincere pumpkin patch, by the way, this year. And we go out into this patch and it's spread out before us. And we tell the kids, go, get, go pick the perfect pumpkin. And they all have what they're looking for. Sometimes the long skinny one or the big round fat one or the one that's kind of bent weird. But they have in their mind the perfect pumpkin. We say, go get that pumpkin. And they're out there looking. Dad, take a look. What do you think? And I go look at it and go, yeah. And we turn it over and there are bugs crawling. Nah, it's not a good one. Let's find another pumpkin. And we look and we spend that time out. It's a lot of fun until we find it. And then we get our big barrel full of these just perfect pumpkins. Of course, we leave the patch looking at everybody else going, oh, we already got the good ones. You guys aren't going to find anything nice out there. And we're looking for the perfect one. And that is exactly how we look at the world. We're looking for the good and we can't find it. We want to find the perfect one. Jesus is out there picking all the messed up pumpkins and saying, be healed. <laughs> Here's a messed up pumpkin that needs to sit on someone's porch with a big smile on his face. Here's a messed up pumpkin that needs to be... you know. It, I could go on and on. But Jesus looks at the world. And the perfect pick to Jesus is the person who is paralyzed. It's the person who's dying. It's the sick. It's the bleeding. It's the blind. It's the possessed. That's the person that Jesus is saying, Isn't it wonderful? It's harvest time. I look at the world and go, It's terrible. No. It's harvest time. It's so bleak. How much better of of an environment for the light of Jesus Christ to be seen. It is harvest time. And so he says, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Pray that He'll send out workers from the harvest. There are two things we can do with this game. We can pray that God sends more harvesters out into this bleak, dark world to send us 
into the place where Jesus can be seen. And we can go. We can go harvest. We can pray that He'll send harvesters and we can be harvesters. These two things were at the top of Jesus' list. Yeah, but Rick, here's the thing with this evangelism stuff and without, with going out and sharing. I'm not seminary trained. To which I respond, praise the Lord. Well, yeah, but I, I barely know the Bible. Do you know Jesus? Has Jesus done something in your life? Has He changed you? Because from the moment Matthew was saved, from the very second that he was saved and called by Jesus, it didn't matter what he knew or didn't know. He told his friends, Come celebrate. Jesus is here. It's harvest time. I want to read you one final verse here and we'll, and we'll stop for tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 says something very interesting. Paul writes, You are a letter of Christ. You're a letter. Cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That the way Jesus gets the message out, gets the harvesters out into the harvest, is through flesh and blood people whose lives have been touched by Jesus. Not who have every right answer. You'll find yourselves in discussions with people. You're trying to, you know, you're telling them about Jesus, and they go, "Yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about that?" And I've told you before. You just answer, "I don't know about that, but I know about Jesus. I can tell you about. Je- Here's what He did to me. Here's what He did." And I'll tell you something. I might not say this often, but if we rely on head knowledge and Bible study to get us someday to the point where we think we might be able to tell someone about Jesus, when we get to that point, it's all going to be head knowledge and it's not going to connect and the world will choke on the word because we're just spewing out stuff that has not altered us but if it's what's in your heart if it's seeped down into who you are and when you talk about Jesus your eyes light up not as some historical character but your eyes light up as someone who you love and who has touched you and changed you and and moved you and you just get excited even to see or hear his name that will change lives. That will make you an effective worker in the harvest. The love relationship you have with Jesus Christ. And that's what the world needs. We'll stop there for tonight. Let's pray together. I love this, Lord. I love that when we see disaster, you see opportunity. When we see difficulty, oh, you see you see harvest. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to see what you see when we look at the world. That we'll just have the eyes of Jesus. And we'll take the message of Jesus, not words written on stone, but imprinted on our very hearts. And be used by you in this world to make that difference. Thank you for your word tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.